Hey, in this session, I want to talk to you about um, three benefits to the kingdom of God arising from the upsurge in interest in microchurch. You know, if we really want to kind of contextualize everything and fit into, you know, where we ought to be fitting into, we ought to be thinking about the church triumphant. Now, what I mean by that is not European Christendom, but the church that Jesus said that the, that the gates of hell would not prevail against. And the kingdom of God, that Jesus said, is near you and, and, and is upon you and is here and all of that. And so I want to start out by uh, four steps into what I would call kingdom understanding. And then we're going to look at three benefits that microchurch provides for the kingdom. The last one's going to probably scare you a little bit. And I think that's really a good thing because my goal here is to be a little bit confrontive, um, to, to shock us into thinking differently than we thought in the past, because the past hasn't worked really well, at least the last four or five decades of church in America. And so here are four steps into kingdom understanding. First is grasping how the word church both strengthens us and weakens us. Internally, if we can convince people that they're not just to do a Bible study in the marketplace, they're to accept responsibility to pastor those people, and they see it as a church, then we've strengthened ourselves, And we, we strengthen the church, the overall church, and yet, if we begin to use the word church too freely in the marketplace or school or out, you know, doing sports, playing basketball, whatever you're doing, <clears throat> then we're going to probably frighten people off who have all kind of negative connotations attached to church. And so we really need to grasp how this word has got a lot of power. It's got power to put people off, but it's got power to strengthen our hand as leaders of networks and and, and really build the kingdom of God if we begin to see church in the sense of church in the New Testament. If you think about it, throughout history, almost all churches, I mean, numerically for sure, uh, the percentage of churches that are under 40 people in, in the history of the world is, is mammoth. It's, it's right up there in the high 90s. And so this is pretty much the norm of what Jesus had in mind. And if we'll begin to think in these terms, but then be careful how we use the term, um, grasping how the word uh, church can both strengthen and weaken us becomes a very powerful tool. Secondly, understanding in the kingdom of God that in the Bible, actually, in the Greek language, the words kleros, which gives us cler clergy, and laos, which gives us laity, both simply mean people. And we begin to, in our minds, do away with this hierarchy that causes so much of us to be the center of everybody's attention in that congregation that we oversee. Uh, once we begin to preach that, teach that, and actually live that, we're going to actually benefit an awful lot of people. And we're going to find that there's a lot more labor for the harvest that's available to us right now than we understand. And then redefining the role of the word pastor um, confers both authority and responsibility on an individual. Again, this kind of links back to the to the first one these that I was talking about. If we understand the, the word church and that a lot of what we have going on inside the circle of our congregations is actually a micro church. But if we would redefine that leadership role as pastor, all of a sudden there comes a, an authority to make decisions that you may not have conferred on other people, but also then the responsibility to shepherd the flock. If I'm leading a Bible study in the marketplace, ah, that's a nice thing. If I'm shepherding people in the micro in the marketplace and I'm taking responsibility for those people or those people in a in a classroom, in a school, whatever, 
then all of a sudden, it, it, there's there's just a whole new aspect of, of life and care and concern. And <clears throat> I begin to see myself not as just leading something to kind of kill time at lunch hour, but I begin to see myself as caring for these people and their needs and helping to assemble the others around them to meet their needs. And usually when you start meeting needs, other people get involved in it. You know, we talk a lot about the attractional model of church. And that's kind of a negative term, at least in, in my church culture, because that's all about putting on a big show. But you know what? Every church is attractional. My wife is working with a with a, 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 a woman who we used to know a long time ago as a little boy. Uh, she's transvestite and uh, she's hungry. She's attracted to my wife. She picked up on her on Facebook after a 50 some odd year uh, absence. We haven't seen this person in five decades. And, and suddenly she's attracted to my wife. Their attraction is a part of this. And when you start meeting people's needs, other people are attracted to it. And the gospel can kind of uh, proceed organically rather than programmically. And then uh, the, the last thing that we need to really think about is casting every member as a missionary. You know, that's a slogan they used to toss around a lot in the 60s and 70s, but there's power in it, mobilizing everyday missionaries into the culture in which they live, whether it's school, it's playing basketball, it's, you know, pick up softball, it's out surfing, whatever they're doing, if they see themselves as missionaries, there's power in it. But that can be a little bit frightening. We'll get to that in the last part of this presentation. So I want to talk about how microchurches uh, effectively penetrate unreached ethne. Now, uh, we really need to understand the word ethne. It, it, it doesn't mean ethnicity. It, it doesn't relate as much to DNA as it relates to the fact that you identify with a certain group of people. That, that we, the, the word affinity is coming into play here. I think affinity group defines ethne a little bit better than DNA. And we're going to need to have to place a, a higher value on people that, that Jesus calls persons of peace, people who have an entree into this other people group. You know, you, you think about Philip on, on the road and he meets this Ethiopian eunuch. That guy is a person of peace. He can reach into this people group. Jesus at the well in Samaria, this person goes into this people group. Uh, Peter goes to the, the house of the of the Roman officer in Caesarea, and, and that gets into a, a whole nother people group. And so we get, we get ethnicity, DNA ethnicity, but we get ethnicity that's just people who live in different places, who are interested in different things, who identify with one another, and how we penetrate those. And so I want to start out with kind of the standard uh, thought about um, ethnicity, which has to do with, you know, DNA, people's race. I have a Japanese American friend named Mel Isara who was with us. He was just laden with anxiety. It was a struggle for him to get out of his house and come to church. He ran at that time a business in Hawaii, printing up and selling t-shirts that were macho Hawaiians in, in, in ancient Hawaiian war helmets, which were made of gourds. And then he would put those things on pit bulls. And it was kind of almost a racist thing. It was kind of like, really pro-local Hawaiian and really kind of anti-people like me who look white. And I used to just hate those shirts and wonder who in the world is producing them. And it was a guy in my church. I had no idea. <clears throat> well, he, he came out of the anxiety through the Lord. He got involved in mini church. He then helped 
plant a church that grew to about 700 people. And then from there, they sent him out to plant a, a church in a place called Nanakuli, Hawaii, which is a real heavy local Hawaiian population. And then from there, he moved to Waianae. When he was in Nanakuli, very quickly, he decided, I'm staying here for two years. I'm raising up somebody to take my place, a local person. And he did. And and, and, and that church just went on. It exploded with growth and, and began to have political power in the state. Very interesting thing. And then he moved to Waianae. And he's just a little guy. He's a little short Japanese guy, real slender. And and he's he's this is new territory for him. I mean, he's going to a place where uh, people don't look like he does. And so he starts praying, God, give me a whole bunch of big Hawaiian guys as the leaders in my church. And good night. Every time that, that Mel would show up at some leadership event, he would bring this like, I mean, just heavyweight bodyguards along with him. But he was able to do this and, and to do it twice. And the interesting thing is both of those churches exploded with growth. The odd thing is about the, the second one, the church in Waianae, on day one, he announced, I'm not your pastor. I'm here to train your pastor. And, and two years from now, I'm leaving. That was the first day of church. That excited people, by the way. The odd thing is he went back, the third church that he pastored, it's people who look like him. And it's doing well, but it's not exploding. And so kind of an odd thing but but you know when when we look at this micro church because he started micro then and it actually outgrew micro very very quickly i have a friend in denver his name is ron johnson church is called restoration church and just a few months ago they began to plant uh, micro churches inside and outside their church actually kind of planted them inside but very quickly uh, the Holy Spirit just kind of breathed on it and it took off and they're starting to reach people from other races who are not going to feel comfortable in a predominantly white church. And they got 55 microchurches going in like five or six months and, and microchurches are breeding microchurches and that's, that's, that's where the power seems to lie. They've been a, an attractional model. They got to 500 people after decades. All of a sudden, they may have doubled that number in just a few months time by reaching into the community. Now, again, we're not thinking about microchurch as a tool to get people in my building. We're thinking about microchurch as a tool to, to expand the kingdom of God and penetrate the culture around us. Geographically, I've talked a lot about my friend Myron Pierce, who, who had already jumped on the idea of microchurch pre-COVID. And uh, kind of, the we'll train you to be a pastor. We'll train you to start a business if that needs to be. We're, we're in African-American communities where there's a lot of poverty, a lot of welfare. As a pastor, you're going to have to have a job or you're going to have to have a business because you have to be a good example to people. And they begin to use a microchurch model to geographically penetrate the Middle West. So they start in Omaha. They're in like seven or eight of the, quote, villages in North Omaha, Nebraska, the traditionally African-American community. Uh, they're in... In Colorado, they're in Chicago, they're in New Jersey, they're in Kansas City. But then they decided that once COVID hit, uh, they started to up their game in terms of the internet. They started a church in Harare, Zimbabwe. They started another church in Kampala, Uganda. I took Myron with me to London. Uh, he met a guy in Brixton, South London, which is a predominantly African UK neighborhood. Uh, a lot of people who are, are migrating from North Africa are there, and he met a guy there, and, and the, Myron has cracked a code that I have yet to crack, and that's the ability to 
to, to figure out who I should be dis discipling in this other community where I've never visited in my life and raise those people up to pastor the congregation. And again, they're starting micro, but they go to macro. And so micro churches are penetrating geography. I have a friend named Parker Green. Uh, his mother was my first secretary. She was like 19 years old. I was probably 27, 28. His dad was one of my best friends. He and his sister kind of both grew up in the in, in the ministry. Parker ended up on staff running the junior highs for Hillsong Church in Sydney, Australia. You might have heard of that one. And his brother-in-law, who his sister married, uh, is a guy named Paul Andrew, and he was the senior high school pastor. And then they all moved to New York City and planted a church there that's thriving. And then Parker, but that's a, a mega church. Parker felt a call to plant micro churches. And the last time I talked to Parker, there were up to eight micro churches in Huntington Beach, California. Their goal, they're meeting once a month as a, as a collective, but their goal is to get it down to where, where we meet at the most once every three months as a collective, and we are in small groups. That was about six months ago. The last I heard from Parker, by the way, I did a podcast. You can go listen to Par Parker in that podcast. Salt Churches is the name of the group. They're up to 72 churches, and now geographically, they're all across the United States. There's one in Africa, one in Europe. Things are booming and mushrooming. It's just that God needs to get us to stretch our brains to, to start to think about unreached ethne and, and get it off of, you know, oh, we got a few Hispanics in our church, so we're a multi-ethnic church. We got to begin to think a little differently than we've thought in the past. And then thirdly, I want to talk about uh, lifestyle groups. I, I talked to a friend of mine two days ago. There's some people who came from uh, I believe it's Michigan to Hawaii. I mean, you get a further stretch of the imagination of different kind of people. And they started a church and they actually got a permit to do this. And they're Lutherans. They're not the kind of people who normally get real, real far out of the box. They started a church in a place called Kapiolani Park, which is just adjacent to Waikiki. Usually if people are doing Christian things in Kapiolani Park or on the beaches of Waikiki, they're meeting with tourists. These people are, are reaching locals. They're white people from Michigan and the region, local people in Hawaii. And it started out as a micro church in a park at, at the beach. And all of a sudden there's 200 people there. Uh, they're doing crazy things that they, they got people from the local community now offering surf lessons to children of people who are showing up in church once a month on a Saturday. Uh, they're, they're, they're able to do different things built around a lifestyle in, in, in a culture. This last part where I'm talking about lifestyle, all three examples come from Hawaii. I have another friend named Randall Kalama, and I was, I'm doing a podcast with him probably this week. It'll come out. And I spent a couple hours with Randall and Annie Kalama. And I've known Randall since he was like a senior in high school. He was a quarterback of the football team. He became a major worship leader in our church. He went through a hard divorce. He's a police officer. He married this wonderful woman who was a school teacher. Now she's kind of a big shot in, in the school district in Hawaii. She's pretty much running everything that has to do with special needs kids for the whole state. They decided to leave our church to go plant a micro church in Honolulu, Chinatown, which is a skid row. It's where people are living homeless, on drugs, on alcohol, whatever. <clears throat> they took their tithe money and then some and rented uh, a, a small commercial space so that people would have a place that they could gather. And they started just serving food, uh, going down there, 
uh, Sundays and then going down there Fridays. They'd already been walking the community, distributing water, distributing food, getting to know people. Uh, it started out very, very small, very discouraging, in fact. And then all of a sudden, uh, a couple of people got involved, both of whom are now passed away. They were street people. They were homeless people. One guy's real kind of macho, almost kind of goofy, crazy. He found the Lord and everything straightened out in his life, but he stayed on the street so he could minister to people that he knew. That was his culture. And so eventually the Lord called them to New Mexico. They got in New Mexico. They began to work on an Apache reservation. They actually took the gospel into a secular thing that was going on with the Apache people. And those people invited them to stay and do their Christian thing there. And that was a wonderful thing. Randall got cancer. They moved back to Hawaii. Uh, he's currently cancer-free. Uh, they're they're uh, starting a, a new ministry in the town where they live. And the ministry kind of looks like this. There's a certain bar in town that's a real popular place, uh, but a kind of a low-life place. Uh, and they're going, we don't really like bar food and we don't drink alcohol, but we're going to start spending every Sunday night in that bar eating so we can get to know the people. Because Sunday night in a bar is kind of like the worst night of attendance in the bar. And so who's there are the people who just are there every night. And that's the people that they want to get to know. And so, again, lifestyle, 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 three different situations. One was lifestyle, one was ethnic, and the other is lifestyle, uh, lifestyle in, in Chinatown ethnic with the Apaches and lifestyle again with the people who are hanging out in the bar. I have a friend named Wendell Alento. I talk about him all the time. He left our staff, very important member of our church staff, big church. And he left because there was five people murdered in a conference room in Xerox Corporation in downtown Honolulu. Uh, one thing led to another. He planted a micro church. He made the mistake of letting it turn into just kind of a lunchtime fellowship for Christians. He abandoned that. Somebody else is still running it. But Wendell went into um, a, a, a bar twice a week and a restaurant once a week at 6.30 in the morning. He's pastoring three microchurches among upscale business people in downtown Honolulu. So here you are, the, the geography that I've just described from Kapi'olani Park to downtown Honolulu is about three miles. And then to get to uh, where the Kalamas were working in Chinatown is about another half mile away from there. All very, very close, but just vast expanse of different kinds of people groups. And if we can kind of figure out this ethne thing and get the people groups, we're going to really get it together. Microchurches number two, eliminate uh, church planting obstacles. Now, I'm going to say obstacles where other people would say cost because cost is an obstacle. Peter Drucker said that everything in business is either a profit center or a cost center. There's nothing in between. And, and so ministry costs, we need to see cost. They're an obstacle. They stand in our way of growth and multiplication. If we can reduce costs, if we can reduce overhead, if we can reduce church planting costs, um, then, you know, we're home free. And so microchurches eliminate the three big costs that we face when we're planting churches. The first one is the professional training of church planters. You know, I, I've been talking to people. I, I, I'm really shocked. I, I talked to a guy who planted a church and he raised $1.25 million. And after uh, two or three years in, he's got like 100 people. Uh, and, and now he has to answer to all these people who dump vast sums of money in the thing. And frankly, he's intimidated. But, you know, the initial cost of uh, for 
the standard way that people plant churches in America is that some guy has to go to seminary. There's a massive cost and a lot of student loans that are attached to graduating from a university and then graduating from a seminary. And so if we're doing micro church, we just don't even face that cost at all. Second, pastor salaries. Again, uh, the idea of microchurch is that we work with people who are freelance pastors who have a job or a business or some kind of a career going, and they don't need the money. And then, of course, rent and mortgages. You know, you can do a microchurch um, just about anywhere. I have a friend, uh, Randall Ishida. He starts microchurches in coffee shops because he's working with guys coming out of prison, and you can't get them near a bar. And so he'll, he'll start in a coffee shop. He's been able to penetrate the halfway houses where these people live now. Uh, in, in all these situations, no rent and mortgages. Uh, Randall and Annie going into the bar, no rent. Uh, they went into Chinatown, there was rent. But uh, the guys on the beach, no rent. But typically, a micro church is going to be a house church and maybe an apartment church. And maybe if you live in an urban area where parking is at a premium and it's really hard to gather people in your home, uh, whether it be an apartment or it be a house, like when we were in Honolulu, then you find yourself uh, meeting in the food court at the mall or the grocery store happens to have a little, you know, sandwich area and then they have a place to sit down, whatever, coffee shop, uh, rent just goes out the window and it frees up money for the, the, the slide I want to show you next. Now, as we get into this, I just want to give you a warning. The next one is going to be a little bit scary, uh, but it's designed to be scary and it's designed to stretch your thinking. If we can eliminate these costs and we can free up people's tithes. Now, before we get into the slide, I want to say this. I think if you are leading a, a legacy church and you're hoping to plant micro churches, that your goal is to keep the micro church pastor or the micro church that's out there, not the one inside your church. Of course, that guy's in your church. But the guy that's out there, keep him in your church for stability for his family and stability for your church finances while he's planting a microchurch. But think about this. The microchurch really doesn't need money. You need that guy's tithe money to keep operating so that you can keep networking and, and planting more microchurches and sponsoring them, launching them. But that microchurch doesn't need money. And that's where this slide comes in. Every member of a microchurch can be a potential missions agency. I'm leading a microchurch right now myself on Saturday nights. We're small, about seven people. Um, we all are, or not all, all, most of us are retired, but the ones who are not retired are successful in business. <clears throat> we have no overhead other than the cost that I pay to be on Zoom and, and have the tools that I have. Other than that, there's, there, there's, there's no cost at all. And so we can begin to focus the money that we would normally tithe if we were part of another church because none of us are at the moment. This is our church. Uh, one guy is, is leading a church for disabled people in Austin, Texas. Another guy is, is, is reaching out to people in the hip-hop music industry uh, on the side. But, you know, if, if you think about it, this, this liberates a lot of money for whatever the Lord might have in mind. And so low overhead can release funds into ministry that normally go into maintenance. And then secondly, every member can disperse funds from their personal tithe. I think I told you this story. Uh, we started a, a microchurch in Las Vegas from Hawaii. Uh, from there, they started another one in Reno. 
Uh, we tried to go official and get the 501c3. That didn't work out. We're trying to figure out what do you do with money? And, and we ran into a guy that I know uh, in Honolulu, and he'd been running a, a microchurch for 18 years. And everybody is kind of upper middle class. And he is, um, he's an engineer. He travels the world. He's gone about half the weeks of the year. His, his whole deal is every member of our church is a missions agency. The lazy ones, we give them a list of five different things that we support. You can put your tithe there. Everybody else has created a bank account. They tithe to the bank account, separate bank account, and then that money belongs to Jesus. And they give it away where it's going to do the most good in the community. And when again, everything ultimately is attractional. If you're giving money to people in need and it has a name of Jesus attached to it, people who normally think of Christians as selfish and churches as money grubbing, all that goes out the window. It, it vaporizes and they got to have another think about what you're all about and why you'd be doing this and why you think it's Jesus's money in the first place. And so here again, we're, we're going to have to change our thinking a little bit. We're going to have to think of a, of a scorecard that uh, honors outreach and penetration of different ethne more than it honors church size. I mean, that's just fundamental to everything that we're talking about. We wouldn't even be considering microchurch if it wasn't for that. We need to look at the New Testament and see when the church began to be effective. It was led by lay people. In fact, probably the greatest missionary church on the, in the history of the planet is the second church of Antioch. The first church of Antioch was led by lay people who ran away from Saul the persecutor, and they got out in the middle of the Mediterranean world, then they converged on Antioch, but they only talked to Jews. And then the Bible says, however, some people, and it names, you know, where they're from, spoke to Gentiles also. And this church was born that began to set the stage, the model, for actually what Jesus said to do in Matthew chapter 28 and Acts chapter 1 verse 8, uh, where the Jerusalem church had failed, the church at Antioch succeeded. But then as you look out from there, virtually every pastor was leading a microchurch. Virtually every pastor was a freelancer. It, it just, it, it's the church. It's the way it's presented to us, and it's the way we've strayed away from. <clears throat> as soon as you think of every member as a missionary, and you're thinking micro here, then you begin to bestow new authority on these people and new responsibility. Just like I said earlier about pastors, new authority is yours here. Take your tithe money and go do something for God with it. Uh, new responsibility is yours here. Take your tithe money and go do something for God with it. You have now a responsibility to oversee this that Jesus has put into your lap and oversee it to the benefit of the kingdom of God. Now, as we wind down here, I'm hoping that I'm rattling your cage just a little bit. You know, the question always is, what is the Holy Spirit saying to you through this little presentation that I'm doing? And 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 I'm hoping this one upsets you a little bit. That's my goal in in, in doing it because we have fallen into something that's entirely reflective of American big box culture. Uh, the, the the church looks so unlike the church in the New Testament that we got to find some ways that maybe relate to us culturally to kind of find our way back into what would be the archetype of church, because that's really what you're reading about in the New Testament. It's the benchmark. It's the thing we all ought to reach up to attain to. Now, a lot of people think when we're looking at mini microchurch, 
we're reaching down to attain to something. No, no, we're reaching up to attain the New Testament standard for the church. It's going to be painful. It's going to be scary. The closer that I've gotten to it in my life, I certainly have never attained it. The scary it's always always been. But the truth is, in the end, it was the most rewarding. It was the most rewarding for me positionally. I became more important to the people as I was an equipper, a disciple maker, and a releaser of people into the authority and responsibility that God gave them. It was a threat to us financially, but actually we flourished financially. The more we gave away, the more we got, and that's a sort of a biblical concept. Uh, it became frightening to give away people, but again, the more we did that, the more we got. And so I, I think God blesses those who bless others. And microchurch now is a tool that I see, which is the archetype. And it's a tool for the kingdom. And it's a tool for the kingdom in this century, in this culture, in any culture in the world.